Listen, I, I think of the sovereignty of God. I've been praying all week. I was going to go in a different direction uh, with today's teaching, but uh, just since last night, uh, at least in this first service, uh, that we should be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, and then hearing um, Pastor Ethan just talk about um, this issue of anxiety, which, I, yes, the Bible speaks in, you know, incredibly and profoundly on this subject. I, I want you to take this message as not a part of the series, but a prequel to the series. Because if you don't get this right, you have no shot against anxiety. If you don't, if you don't internalize what Paul's going to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you don't get this right, it's sort of like trying to sing the alphabet song leaving off the letter A. It just doesn't work. This is first things first. Paul says, beginning of verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it's a very small thing, Paul says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each man's praise or commendation will come to him from God. I, I just want to talk for a few moments about the freedom of identity. Amen. When you know who you are, there is incredible freedom in that. Amen. That's why if we don't get the identity thing right, we have no shot on, on anxiety. Amen. There's freedom. So, Father, would you speak to us today? I, I, um, I abdicate myself of any crazy notion that I can change anybody. I can't change anyone. I can't even change myself. That's why we need a Savior. And so I just pray, Lord God, that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it will take root, that it would bear much fruit. These people don't need to hear the thoughts of a middle-aged man. They need to hear from a timeless, eternal God. I, I do pray in the middle of talking about uh, identity that you would uh, allow me, grace me, to do the work of an evangelist. There's someone here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior. Maybe they know that, or maybe they're operating under the illusion of salvation, but the gospel has not really taken root in their hearts. So I pray that the message of Jesus Christ and the fact, Lord God, that he has freed us and the identity that we can have in him would take root in our lives. Change us. Transform us. Give us a transformative word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you in a room this size, you have been a victim of what's called identity theft. Identity thieves are some of the most brazen people on the planet. I've got friends of mine who have been victims of identity theft, and they will tell you it is one of the most violating experiences one can ever go through. Uh, in essence, what an identity thief does uh, um, is that he or she um, 
gets access to a person's very personal and pertinent information. Um, they assume the other person's identity. Uh, identity thieves have been known to open up lines of credit in someone else's name. Uh, they've been known to open up credit cards in another person's name. Some have gone so far as to buy cars in another person's name. I've even read stories of some even buying homes in another person's name. Again, identity thieves are some of the most brazen people on the planet. Nothing, it's hard to find an experience more violating than for someone to assume your identity. Now, it's because of this, Corey and I, my wife and I, so far, we've never been uh, a victim uh, of an identity uh, thief, but uh, we wanted to be proactive. So several years ago, we entered into a relationship with a company called LifeLock. Now, you may have heard of LifeLock. Uh, if you're considering getting into a relationship with LifeLock, let me just say this, they will get on your last nerve. Uh, because if they suspect any suspicious activity, what's going to happen is they're going to ping you with an email, and not just with an email, but with a very verbose email. And as you kind of sift through that email, that whole very wordy email can be whittled down to three words. Is this you? Is this you? They are asking the question of identity. Now, in a room this, this, this size, um, we're probably spanning the spiritual spectrum. Uh, some of you are here today, and you're a, you grew up in the church. You're a church OG. Maybe you're like me. You go back to flannel board days and Sunday school, seeing a few people nod their heads. Uh, they, they either have gray hair or they've been coloring their hair. But you, you know, you know. You go back, uh, others of you, um, this is your first time in church, and you wouldn't even call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. What, what I want you to know is what Paul is tapping into isn't a uniquely Christian subject. It, it, is, it is a subject that is a part of what it means to be made in the imago Dei, the image of God. In, in other words, what Paul is helping us to see is, is that the background elevator music to all of our souls is the question of identity. No, we may not literally ask, is this you? We, we tend to ask another three-word question centered around this concept of identity. Who am I? I don't care how much money you make. I don't care your employment status. I don't care what your neighborhood is. I don't care if you've got kids or if you're married or if you're single. We are always asking ourselves the question, who am I? Uh, now, there's a guy in church history you should get to know. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived around the early to mid part of the 20th century. Uh, he was a wonderful, Jesus-loving man who died very young. Uh, I think he wasn't even 40 yet when he died. If you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, my favorite place in London. Don't like the food in London. It's been said in hell the chefs will be British. But anyways... If, you, if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, you aren't sorry if you're from England, uh, but if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, uh, there's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a part of an exhibit known as the 20th Century Martyrs. Loved Jesus Christ, um, was ultimately executed for participating in a coup to try to overthrow Hitler and the Nazi regime. Again, loved Jesus 
Days before he died, I can see him now in my mind's eye. He's sitting on his bed there in his cell, facing execution, and he picks up a pen and he writes this poem. Will you look at it with me? Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Hear it. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. I love how he ends. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. What allowed him to go to the gallows where reportedly his last words is, for me, they think this is the end, but it is only the beginning. How can he say that on the way to his execution? He had to have known that his life and identity was not ultimately tethered and tied to this life. What his identity superseded this life. The background elevator music to all of our souls is the question of identity. Who am I? All of us ask this question. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Ethan and I got invited to speak to a group of um, NHL National Hockey League players uh, in Colorado Springs. Now, that's hilarious that they would invite me, a black man, to talk to a bunch of hockey people. I don't know how much you know about hockey. For whatever reason, it's just never gained traction in my community. It's just, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a bunch of white dudes with sticks chasing a black object. I don't know what it is. It's just, uh, it's just I like hockey, by the way. Anyways, um, so I'm standing before them, and I say, this is hilarious. I know nothing about your sport, nothing. So you don't have to worry about me you know, being a fanboy. This I, I, I don't know who you are. But here's something I can guess about you. You're the cream of the crop. Mama, I've made it. You're, you're a professional athlete. And, and here's, here's my guess about you. My guess about you is from the time you were a little something, you picked up on that you have these extraordinary athletic abilities and, and that you kind of got a lot of attaboys that were tied to your performance. So it just kind of unleashed in you this performance mechanism. Perform, 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 applaud, applaud, applaud. And so, man, you, you perform well enough, I get selected on that tr nice travel club. But once you get on that nice travel club, the performance isn't over because you want to be recruited. So perform, 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 let me get recruited to that college. And you get recruited to that college, but the performance isn't over because you want to get drafted. So perform, 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 you get drafted. You sign that contract, but the performance isn't over because we all understand in professional sports that the big contract ain't the first contract, it's the second contract. So perform, 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 perform. My identity is wrapped around my performance, but here's the problem. At some point, the gig will be up. There'll be an injury. Age will kick in. The lights will go dark. The crowds will dissipate, and you'll be left with the question, who am I? I hope this is a safe place. I'm assuming it is. You're going to do a series on anxiety. My wife and I are in therapy. 
She's got a lot of stuff to work out, I tell you. <laughs> I'm so kidding, so kidding. Part of the reason why we're in therapy is um, my wife, broadcast journalism degree, used to work for ABC News, and uh, then we meet. Um, she had just gotten saved. I felt unusually compelled by God to be a part of her discipleship process, and uh, so we get married. And, uh, and, and then, then we get pregnant with our first child and she says, I think I want to be home full time. So she quits her job in the marketplace. And, um, we've got three boys, 22, 20, and 18. And our 22 year olds in the military and our 20 year olds in college and our 18 year old on September the 6th is going to take off and, uh, he's going to leave the house never to return. <laughs> I'm naming and claiming that one. Children are like arrows, not boomerangs. But anyways. So here's the deal. My, 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 my wife, the therapist, says, you're, you're being rocked right now because you're about to get fired from your job. Empty nest is looming. And my wife is wrestling with the question. Who am I? Some of you all are in a season of unemployment. And little did you know that your sense of self-worth and esteem was attached to a job. And you thought you were going to work for a typical day and there was the pink slip. And you're wrestling with the question, who am I? Others of you, it's the opposite. Job's going great, money's flowing in, you're getting promoted, career's on an upward trajectory, but when you pull into your driveway at night, something in you says something's missing. Little did you know you're living out the book of Ecclesiastes. You've got it all, but it seems as if you've got nothing at the same time. And you're wrestling with the question, who am I? We come now to our text. There's one word that canvases our whole text. It is, it is the word identity. I've only got two points today. I know good preachers preach in threes. Come back next week for some good preaching and a nice, wonderful three-point sermon. I've only got two points. Paul is dealing with this issue of identity, but in order to rightly divide this text, we have to set it within its larger context. Paul is actually writing a multi-ethnic church. Uh, Acts chapter 18 says that when he was in Corinth, he was reasoning with Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks now come to faith. These, these people who had nothing in common prior to Christ, now it seems as if they've got everything in common. A church is being built. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right around verses 10 and 11, Paul tells them why I'm writing you. I'm writing you because I've gotten a bad report about you. Chloe has told me, Paul says, that there is division among you. Now, parenthetically, if I'm Chloe right now, I'm a little ticked off at Paul because, Paul, you know I told you that in confidence, and you're going to put me on blast for all of eternity to say, okay, Paul, I got attitude with you. There's divisions, Paul says. Some of you are saying, uh, there's a little click among you saying, I'm of Paul, the founder of the church. And there's another click saying, no, I'm not of Paul. I'm of his successor, Apollos. Man, Apollos can preach the birds out of the trees. That's my guy. Another group is saying, not Paul, not Apollos. I'm of Peter, the one who got it kind of kicked off on the day of Pentecost. Another group saying, it ain't none of those. It's Jesus Christ. And they are divided. And one of the things 1 Corinthians teaches us, hear me now, is when we, when we remove and relegate our identity 
in Christ to the lesser identities of this life, division will always happen. Now, I think that's a word the body of Christ needs to hear because we are living among the most fractured, divided times in my lifetime. We are divided in a million different ways. We're divided politically, and that's the Democratic church, and that's the Republican church, and you've heard this before. Uh, we are not the people, ultimately, of the, uh, of the donkey or the elephant. We are the people of the lamb. Jesus Christ is not coming back on Air Force One. I got news for you that when the star-spangled banner is played, Jesus Christ does not stand to his feet, remove his hat, and put his hand over his heart. Jesus does not pledge allegiance to America. America is to pledge allegiance to Jesus. And if what I've said bothers you, I'd love to get your emails. Email me at ethan at bridgechurch.com. So what does Paul do with this divided, with this divided culture? How does he... How does he bring a sense of unity? Paul takes one thing, the gospel, and applies it to everything. Now, I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up down south. I'm used to this God-forsaken humidity you all are enduring. It was just part of my upbringing. Um, if you were to look at my mama's medicine cabinet growing up, it wasn't that complicated. Outside of some Band-Aids, she didn't have a whole lot of stuff in her medicine cabinet. She only had one thing, but this one thing was a dreaded thing. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever tasted in my life, uh, and I pray it's not in heaven. It can't be in heaven. It can't be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. If I see it, I'm walking out right away. It is that foul. It's the dreaded cod liver oil. Now, if you've never had cod liver oil in your life, consider yourself blessed and highly favored. My mother, who's not a medical doctor, had it in her mind that cod liver oil, she took this one thing and she applied it to everything. Got a fever, cod liver oil. Coughing, cod liver oil. Twisted your ankle, cod liver oil. Broken your leg, cod liver oil. She took one thing and applied it to everything. How does Paul deal with a sick body? He takes one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he applies it everything. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ where our identity is rooted in. It's exactly what Paul says as he begins our text. Because when Paul comes to our text, there's this tension. On the one side, there is a group of people in Corinth who love Paul. They said, hey, Paul, I'm of you. You're my guy. And so maybe Paul's tempted to build your identity around your successes. I'm a New York Times bestselling author of 13 books, half the New Testament. I'm a capital L leader. I've planted a whole bunch of churches. Maybe I can just leverage that, get the blue check on social media, put my identity in that. But Paul says, I'm not going to do that. On the flip side, there are a whole bunch of people in the church of Jesus Christ who don't like Paul. And this is kind of normal. Any leader worth its salt You'll have people who don't like you. And so maybe Paul is tempted, on the other hand, to not put his identity in his successes, but to put his identity in victimhood. By the way, that's very popular these days. To put your identity in victimhood. By the way, let me just say this. I'm a big proponent of therapy. Please go get therapy. But here's my caution to you. Be very careful of taking a therapist's diagnosis and wearing that as a label of identity. You are not your depression. You are a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Your identity is in him. So Paul 
What are you going to do? Put your identity in your successes. Put your identity in your perceived failures. Paul says, no. Let a man regard us in this manner, I love it, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here's my identity. I'm a servant and a steward. I'm a servant and a steward. I'm a servant. I'm not a writer. I'm not a pastor first. I'm a servant and I am a steward. It's like I took, told those hockey players, you're, you're, you're not a hockey player who happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be a hockey player. Your identity is in Christ. Now, this is complicated as this little Sunday school lesson gets, but Paul is writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for servant literally means an under rower. It was a picture of the Roman ships that would sail the Mediterranean Sea, and they were powered not by coal, not by gas, not by steam, but they were powered by a group of men under deck rowing in unison. They weren't rowing according to their own timetable. They were rowing under the voice and under the authority of the captain. He also says, I'm a steward, Greek word, oikonomos, 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 from which we get the English word economics. Here it is. A steward, oikonomos, doesn't mean one who owns the house, but one who manages the house. The closest biblical kind of parallel to that is Joseph with Potiphar. Potiphar owns the house. Joseph uh, manages. Watch it now. Both of these words, servants and steward, here is the common denominator. It is individuals who are under the authority of another. And my identity is so inextricably tied to the captain, to the owner, that to see me is to see them. And to see them is to see me. My identity is in Christ. That's why I was listening to Tim Keller's memorial service highly influential pastor, loved Jesus. And one of the things that struck me the most is his refusal to attract attention to himself. Everything went back to God. Now, what happens when my identity is in Christ? Two things, and I'm out. Number one, when your identity is in Christ, and by the way, this isn't a one and done thing. It is a daily decision. I'm not my paycheck. I'm not my job. I'm not my relationship status. I'm not the amount of likes I get on social media. I'm not the amount of followers I have. I am not my kids. Some of y'all need to hear that. I am not my kids' behavior. I am not my kids' performance in their athletic contest. And let me just help somebody with this encouraging word. Stop acting so crazy at your kids' ball games. Let me encourage you. Your kids ain't going pro. I can say that with confidence because they've got your genes. You ain't go pro. What makes you think your kids are? Again, email me at Pastor Ethan at Bridge Church. When my identity is in Christ, I'm free now to put gospel distance between who I am and what I do. There's gospel distance between who I am and how my kids behave. Your sense of joy, your sense of who you are should not rise and fall on your kids' behavior. Have you seen God's kids lately? My identity is not based on what the scale tells me. It's not my body type. 
When you're free in Christ, you can carve it up. (laughs) I'm being a bit facetious there, but you get the point. There's gospel distance. So what happens? There's freedom. Now, there's a little, there's a little word that, that keeps coming up. First point, there's freedom from other people's opinion. Now, just look at the text. There's a little word that keeps coming up. Judge, 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 judge. This word judge, hear it now, doesn't mean verdict or outcome. It really speaks to the process. It means to be analyzed or scrutinized. You get this. You and I live in a fishbowl. People have opinions about us all the time. They're, they're making judgments about us all the time, where we live and, you know, uh, what we drive and, you know, and whether or not we're married and if we've got kids, how they behave. And everybody's making judgment upon judgment upon judgment. But when my identity is in Christ, I am free from your opinion. I'm free from what you think about me. And not only am I free from your opinion, Paul says... But to me, it is a very small thing. And then he goes on to say, I don't even judge myself, which means I'm free from your opinion and I'm free from my opinion. We all have a little inner lawyer inside of us that works overtime that we need to give a pink slip to. We need to all know the freedom of firing our inner lawyer. Have you ever met with someone and then you come back from the meet and go, man, why did I say that? And I shouldn't have said that. And I should have done that. Or why did I eat that? I should have eaten that. I should have eaten that. We need to tell our inner lawyer to shut up. Because when my identity is in Christ, I'm free from what you think about me. I'm free from what I think about me. But there's one opinion that matters. Verse 5, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. I'm not freed from everybody's opinion. There's one person's opinion I'm working for, and that's God's. It's God's. But here's the beauty of God's opinion. I got to give you that with a grain of salt because God has always and already rendered his verdict upon you, and that is he's already accepted you. He's already approved of you, not because of your performance, but because of the performance of Christ who lived the life you couldn't have lived and died the death you should have died. I want you to hear how freeing that is. When you got saved, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was transferred to your account so that God legitimately says of you, we're good. We're great. I'm proud of you. That's why if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, there's not a a better deal in town. So I'm not working for approval. I'm working from approval. (laughs) Big difference. That's why Matthew 3, 17 is so important. Says of Jesus when he's coming out of the baptismal waters, God says of him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I love the sequence of that. He hadn't preached a sermon yet. He hadn't baptized anybody yet. He hadn't performed a miracle yet. He hadn't died on a cross yet. He hadn't raised from the dead yet. And God says, you haven't performed yet, but I'm proud of you. God says the same thing to you. Employed or unemployed, proud of you. Kids love Jesus, don't love Jesus, proud of you. You're free. Work for the judgment that counts. I am, um, I love the game of golf. Um, 
and some years ago, I was given tickets to, um, to a practice round at Augusta National, the year's first major. Um, and it was a Tuesday practice round. Um, if you know anything about golf tournaments on the PGA Tour, they typically are four rounds, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Each round, they move the pin placements. Pin placements, a little, little flag that protrudes out of the ground on the greens. They move them uh, each day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And Sunday's pin placements are the toughest because that's championship Sunday. So here I am on a Tuesday practice round, and I'm following Tiger Woods around, following my boy around. He doesn't know we're boys, but I'm following my boy around. And I don't like what I'm seeing. Because not once does he put it close to the hole. Not one time. The whole round. Not once does he put it close to the hole. And what's even more disturbing is he doesn't seem to be disturbed by it. He's smiling, enjoying himself. Well, finally, things just kind of reached a... Uh, reach a crescendo for me. Uh, towards the end of the round, we're on this par three, and the pin was front left, but he hits his shot about 50 feet away back right, and this joker has the nerve to slap high five with his caddy. His caddy at the time was a guy named Steve, and, and, and Steve said to him, good shot. Now, I don't know how much you know about golf, but golf is not like going to a college football game. Okay, You're outside, but you, sh you should use your inside voice. So <laughs> Steve says, good shot, and I'm not, I lose my mind. I go, that was not a good shot. <laughs> to which an older guy in the gallery says, young man, you've been following Tiger around all day. I go, yeah. He goes, it's Tuesday. Have you noticed he's never been close to the pin? I says, yes. That's because he's not playing with Tuesday's pin placements in mind. He's playing with Sunday's pin placements in mind. Here he is in the present being navigated by the future. That's what it means when my identity is in Christ. I am not handcuffed to the opinions of the present, but I am living in the Tuesdays of this world with the eternity facing judgment day in mind. My identity's in him. I'm, I'm free. Finally, when I have my identity in Christ, there's, there's a freedom from your opinion and from my opinion. <laughs> but when my identity's in Christ, people are small. God is big. Paul says, to me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I love it. Paul is honest. He's not saying it's no thing. So I, I don't want anybody to leave here just going, you know, walk. I don't want you to go to work tomorrow and go uh, to your boss. I'm not taking feedback from you anymore. Okay. <laughs> I hope uh, y'all have a wonderful benevolence fund here if that happens. So we should be humble enough. Here, here, here it is. We should be humble enough to receive feedback. In fact, one of the ways you know your identity is in Christ is you're not crushed by feedback. I'm not crushed by it. Some of you all, the reason why you're so sensitive, you handcuff relationships with your sensitivity, is because your identity is in Christ. Amen. It's not in Christ. Yeah. If it's in Christ, I'm free enough to hear truth. Yeah. I didn't hear any amens on that, so let me keep moving. <laughs> so here's Paul. Paul says, but to me, it's a very small thing. Greek word, uh, typical Greek word for small is micros. He actually uses superlative of it. It means teeny, 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 teeny. When I compare what you have to say about me with what God has to say about me, no comparison. 
then to the Galatians. If you know anything about the Galatians, Paul plants a series of churches in the region of Galatia. He preaches to them the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. The heathen leaves, some Jewish leaders come, and they, they try to discredit the message, but they know they can't discredit the message without discrediting the messenger. So they attack the identity of Paul. They say he wasn't really a hand-picked apostle of Jesus. Paul gets word. Look at what he says in Galatians 1.10. For am I not seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm not crushed by that. I guess what I'm trying to say is, as we close, if you don't get your identity in Christ right, you're going to be on this performance journey. And you will never get to a point in your life where you feel like I've performed enough. Madonna, at the height of her powers, some 25, 30 years ago, here's Madonna packing out stadiums. She gives an interview to Vogue magazine. Listen to what Madonna said almost 30 years ago. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting uh, unless I do something else. Hear it. Because even though she says I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Do you hear she's saying? It's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Contrast that with Paul. You know the Corinthians hated Paul's preaching. I mean, that's one of the worst things you can ever do to a preacher is to say you're boring. That's what they said to Paul. Hey, Paul, you're boring. Look at his response, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And when I, I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know what he's saying? My identity is so secure that I intentionally wanted to be boring. Because if, if, if an illustration is what it takes to get you saved, then your faith is a house of cards. But I'm so secure in who I am, I'm going to give you the meat of God's word with no Lowry seasoning salt. By the way, if you don't know what Lowry seasoning salt is, never invite me to your house. I close with this. My, um, my youngest son is, um, he's, he's leaving September 6th. He's going to uh, Thailand, uh, Zimbabwe, and Central Asia for a year. He's going to serve the poor and um, run sports camps and share the gospel. And we're, we're believing God for big things. And um, I was telling my wife the other day, as we're on the precipice of emptiness, I feel like, just as my youngest is leaving, that I'm finally getting this parenting thing right. <laughs> I've been uber-reflective. Um, my, my, my son's a pretty good basketball player, and um, I remember his first basketball game, my youngest. He's about six or seven, um, Collierville Rec League. 
Um, I remember going to see him play, and I, 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 I'm so excited. He's six or seven years of age, and I'm sitting up way up in the bleachers. Tip-off's about to happen. My son's in the starting five. I'm excited. Moments into the game, my son puts up a shot, swish. Go crazy. And he just stands there after the ball goes in, and he finds me up in the stands. He's on the court. The other team's got the ball. They're going the other way, but he's, he's standing still, and he finds me up in the bleachers. He goes. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, get going, get going, get going. A little while later in the game, he steals the ball. Doesn't do anything with it, steals it, holds on to it, finds me up in the bleachers. He's like. And I'm like, get going. And if you've, for those of you who are parents, if you've got kids who've, you know, played sports, you know, typically after the game, especially when they're little, you know, one set of the parents is really, you know, a lot of times charged with bringing the Gatorade. And so they're passing out the Gatorade and coach is giving them some, you know, some words of encouragement. But my son breaks the huddle. And he finds me. He says, hey, Dad, did I do good? good? Do you know that was a ritual that he did after every game, all the way through high school? He'd find me, hey, Dad, what'd you think? Did I do good? I've never seen my son ask his coach that question. I've never seen him ask his teammates that question. I've never seen him ask the fans that question. I was the only one who asked that question to. Hey, Dad, did I do good? It's as if my son was saying, if dad says I'm good, I'm good. Who cares what anybody else says? That's where I want you to be. That's the freedom. Work for his applause. So, Father, we thank you. I pray for the Bridge Church. I pray for every person here. This is not a box to be checked. It's not one and done. It is a daily decision that we make. Where we proclaim, I am not my bank account. I am not my relationship status. I am not the letters behind my name. I'm not what I drive. I'm not where I work. I'm not if I work. I am a servant of Christ. I am a steward of the mysteries of God. And the good news of Jesus Christ is I am free from performing because Christ performed for me. When he got on a cross and all of my sins were laid on him, past, present, and future, they went to the grave with him and even though he got up, they stayed in that grave. 
Now the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been, as theologians say, imputed to my account. And God, you see me not through my performance, but you see me through the performance of Christ. And therefore, you can authentically say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. So we rest in that today. In Jesus' name, amen.